This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the letter of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Now this morning we won't get to all of the passage. Uh, I'll mainly be focusing at the end, verses 17 through 21. But I wanted to give you the context for what is happening Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, a Gentile church, so historically and theologically, uh, that would be like you and I, Gentiles, Uh, people who once were far off in God's redemptive plan, but through Christ, he has brought us near, he has brought peace to us who are far off, and he's brought peace to those who are near. What I find interesting about this passage, among many things, is that uh, the church is a corporate reality. The, The church is the body of Christ, the churches, the people of God. There are many images in the New Testament that Paul and the other writers use to describe the church to us. But last week, we talked about adoption. We talked about the fact that in Jesus Christ, apart from anything you and I have ever done, we have been adopted into God's family if we trust in Christ. What we said was is that our status has completely changed. We went from not being a child of God to being a child of God and deserving and receiving all of the benefits that are due us because we are a child of God. Now, if we think about adoption, this strong, crucial, foundational doctrine in the scriptures, and if we think about adoption and we think about the church, from the perspective of adoption, the church is the family of God. And we see it here, Paul calls us the household of God. Now, the family carries a different connotation in every culture, right? The the family carries many connotations in our culture that's different than what we'd experience in cultures around the world or even in Western culture throughout history. One of the things that's so unique and interesting about Christianity is that uh, Christianity both confirms and confronts different things in every culture. And we really should expect that. We should expect if the Bible is true, that it confronts realities that we just uh, assume to be true but aren't. 
and also that the Bible confirms certain desires that we have that are good and right. So in our culture, for example, uh, very few people are going to argue with this sense of justice, and particularly justice as it relates to the marginalized people in any community. There has always been in America a deep sense of philanthropy, a deep sense of justice for those who are the least of these. Right? Now, as Christians, we should be all about that. We should, we should agree with that. We should fight for that. And in fact, we should step into our culture and show our culture where we may not be taking it far enough. But by and large, we realize that we're comforted by the Bible's teaching in those cultural values. But there are many values of our culture that the Bible confronts. Right? Just to use one, right? the sexual ethic of the Bible confronts head-on the sexual ethic of our culture. Right? One of the foundational primary realities of a sexual ethic in the Bible would be sex is reserved for a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Now, in our culture, that doesn't fly over very well, right? It just doesn't. But in other cultures, it does. It's just accepted. Yes, of course, that's the sexual ethic in our culture. But in some cultures where they just accept the sexual ethic that the Bible teaches or something close to it, they are blown away by the fact that we believe that every person deserves justice by being created in the image of God. The fact that every person deserves justice and equal treatment before the law, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, no matter what the color of their skin is, other cultures are blown away by this. And so we see that the Bible, Christianity, both confronts and comforts different realities in every culture. So we should expect that when we think of the family, in our view of the family, it does the same thing. It comforts us in some ways, and it confronts us in other ways. And so this morning, I can't hit on everything. I mean, as I was thinking about this, I was so convicted and confused all at the same time that I thought this really ought to be like two to three sermons, but instead it's one. So here we go. Two simple questions. Assuming that being a part of God's family, we'll, we should expect it to confront some of our assumptions, and also comfort some of our longings, that's where we're going to go. My first question I want to ask us is this. What current cultural desire does the family of God meet? What is that desire in our culture that we all long for that the family of God can meet? Or another way to say it, what current cultural desire is met in the family of God? One word, belonging. Sociologist Peter Drucker, I'm sorry, Peter Drucker, I love that Peter too, but wrong one. Um, Peter Berger, sociologist Peter Berger, uh, wrote a book about three decades ago called The Homeless Mind. And in The Homeless Mind, uh, Peter Berger talks about the fact that modernity is having a terrible fragmenting effect on everyone. Every part of our lives is being fragmented, right? It doesn't matter whether it's our work, family, identity, Everything is being fragmented. The inertia of modernity is towards specialization, towards fragmentation, towards compartmentalization. And so in his book, he writes that, and this is a quote from his book when he's talking about identity or our sense of what it means to be a human being in this world of fragmentation. He says, it should should not be a surprise that modern man is afflicted with a permanent identity crisis a condition conducive to considerable nervousness. In other words, all of us are longing to figure out who we are. All of us want to belong. 
We want someone or something to tell us that we are okay. And everything in our culture is both quick to give us a place to belong that ultimately fails us. And at the same time, it's quick to make sure that we are constantly nervous, constantly striving, constantly trying to figure out where it is we find our place. And so the title is apt, isn't it? The Homeless Mind. We have no home. We have no belonging in modern society. So the homeless mind is communicating that human beings don't know where we belong or who we are. And we are always striving to figure this out. That is what Berger argues for. And in this incredible passage, Paul is writing to a Gentile church telling them, verse 11, to remember. And to remember what? To remember that God has changed their status from not belonging to belonging. You see, last week we talked about adoption. There's a change of status from not being God's children to being God's children. And now we see Paul saying, you Gentiles who didn't believe, who were homeless, who had no home, who did not belong, now in Christ Jesus do belong to God. Paul tells us in this passage, God's work of redemption is to create for himself one family through the reconciling blood of Jesus. And it is through Jesus that all people have access to one father in one spirit. Look with me in verse 19. Here Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now strangers and aliens, a lot of times in the Bible are synonymous. It's kind of hard to distinguish between them, but if we were and we wanted to lean in, strangers would be something more like uh, strangers would be a different ethnicity from a different country. You are strangers. And aliens would be the status of one of those people from a different country coming into a current country. So we may call them resident aliens, right? A stranger and an alien would be someone who is from somewhere else, but who has been allowed to stay in a specific country. They've been given some type of citizenship although they are technically aliens. They technically are not from that place. What Paul is saying is that once was you. But in Christ Jesus, that status of aliens has been removed. And now we not only are citizens, but we are members of the household of God, which means we actually have a belonging. The status change is not just that I'm letting you in. I'm letting you stay among God's people. But Paul's saying, you who once were far off in Christ now actually belong. That is your new status. You are members of the household of God. So household terminology. What does that mean? Oftentimes we would say the family of God. So why does, why does Paul say household? What is he getting at? Well, household terminology in Paul's letters highlights the relationship between one another as siblings and between us as siblings before God. Now, in Paul's pastoral letters in First and Second Timothy, the way he talks about the household of God is his instruction is mainly how do siblings behave with one another in the household of God, right? Because if we're members of the same house, we ought to behave a certain way. And he, he outlines that to Timothy, who's setting up elders in this church uh, when he's, that he's writing to in First and Second Timothy. But here in this instance, what he's mainly talking about when he talks about the household of God is he's referring to identity. He's referring to belonging. In the Roman world of the day that we're reading in here, to be a member of a household meant to have refuge. It meant to have protection. And it meant 
as much as the head of the house could provide, you had provision. So in other words, however rich the head of the household is, that's how secure you are. And Paul is saying that we are members of the household of God, having one father who is infinite in his resources. It also meant identity, as I already said. It meant that in your identity, he gave security that comes with a sense of belonging. That's what it means to be in a family, doesn't it? Doesn't it mean to belong? Isn't that what you say when you say, they treated me like family? What does that mean? It means that they treated you as though you belonged, not as though that you were a resident alien for the day, but that you belonged, that you actually were a part of the family. So at the heart of belonging is to find a place where we're fully known and yet loved at the same time. And that is a unique place. To be fully known and yet loved. Do we not spend most of our lives trying not? Well, I'll say it this way. Do we not spend most of our lives trying to be known enough so that we'll be accepted but not known too much so that we won't be rejected? Right? We, we take on this persona in front of people so they can know just enough of me but not too much because then I might risk being rejected. I might risk being kicked out. Uh, I read a great reminder uh, this week as I was reflecting on adoption uh, in an article. And it said this, adoption into God's family is not dependent upon us. Remember we talked about this? Adoption into God's family is not dependent upon us. He doesn't call the righteous. He redeems sinners. And he also doesn't look at our outward appearance to determine whether he will adopt us. And he doesn't discriminate based on our ethnicity or our social status. His concern is our heart. And the Bible's clear that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone. And all our boasting is in Christ alone. So shouldn't we we be able to show everyone who we are? Shouldn't we be able to come into a community group And be who we are, shouldn't we feel as though we belong if in fact we do belong? Now, I'll be honest, that's not my experience. Is that your experience? I doubt it. I think we catch glimpses of it. I think we catch glimpses of it because it's true. But oftentimes, although we have the status of belonging, just like we have the status of adoption, we don't experience belonging in a similar way as we don't experience the fact that we're beloved children of God. I think there are lots of reasons why this is true. Some of you experienced a family growing up where in order to truly belong to that family, you had to behave, you had to achieve, you had to blend in, or you had to be quiet. You had to to just suck it up and act a certain way. That's how we do it here. That's how we do it in this family. You were taught to perform. You were taught to conform. Maybe it was never said, but you understood, it was clear enough. I can't be fully known because if I'm fully known, I'll no longer fully belong to this family. I'll no longer fully be accepted. Now, some of you grew up in a family where that was true, but you always measured up. Maybe not your siblings, but you did. You always measured up. You always fit the mold. You always were the, the child who belonged. You were the standard. And that'll mess you up too. You see, in the first instance, we have this perpetual striving to earn belonging, even though we already have the status of belonging in the family of God. 
We think if I can just get here or if this can happen or if I can perform in this way, then I'll be okay. Now, people like me, who in my family, I performed well enough, we're messed up in this way. We think I'm fine as long as I continue to perform in this way. So if I continue to perform in this way, I'll continue to belong. But as soon as I mess up, I hope no one finds out. And then we live in this deep fear that one day we will in fact be found out. And then we will no longer belong. So let me ask you, in your lives right now, where are you performing for that sense of belonging? Where is it? It's happening. I said the first week, my hope in this series, this Calibrate series, where we long to change and we need to calibrate our desires and values compared to God's desires and values, I told you that my hope was that we would all reflect during the series, that we would slow down and reflect. So I'm gonna ask you to do that now. Where is it in your life, and maybe you can write this down because I want you to continue to reflect on this. Where is it in your life that you are striving and performing for that sense of validation, that sense of belonging, where you think once I arrive, I will belong, or if I stop performing, I will no longer belong? What is that thing in your life? Now, again, we have the status of belonging. But it's clear, even Paul knows, that we have to work towards experiencing this, which is why he spends chapter four, five, and six in Ephesians chapter four, teaching how do we pursue the unity of Christ, right? He already said, you are one, we all belong. But then all in chapter four, he's telling them how do they pursue unity because they haven't yet arrived. Then in chapter, uh, at the end of chapter four, he talks about how do you put on this new life? Chapter five, he talks about how it's appropriate to walk in love in different relationships, brothers and sisters, siblings, husbands and wives, children and parents. You see, just because we have the status doesn't mean it's our current experience. But we read here that God himself is knitting us together into one body, one family, where we all belong. And if we don't start from a place of belonging, we will always fall into this perpetual treadmill of striving. And if we continue to strive, we will never find our ultimate security. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But before we move on, I wanna remind you of what we said. One of the key ways that the family of God meets a need in our culture and in our lives because of the fragmenting nature of everything around us is that in Christ, we belong. Now, if that's where it comforts us, next question. What current cultural assumption is confronted in the family of God? Right, where does... The Bible's understanding of the family of God, where does it confront us? And in one word, again, I will say individualism. You know, one of the incredible things that Christianity does, like no other religion, no other teaching really, is that it properly situates individual persons in a community of persons. It does that like, like no other thing I've ever been exposed to. It properly situates you and me as individual persons into a community of persons, right? Some cultures are so communal that the individual is lost. But in our culture, we are so individualistic that oftentimes community is lost. And so what happens here is that the one extreme sacrifices the individual for the community and the other extreme sacrifices the community for the individual, Look with me in verses 21 and 22. So I'll end, actually I'll go to 20, second half. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, in our culture, we tend to place undue emphasis on the individual. This reduces the church to a group of believing individuals as opposed to a body of Christ or members one of another or one family. Where, this ends up, where we end up seeing this is that Christian identity then can be separate from participation in a Christian community. You ever heard anybody say that? Hey, I'm a Christian apart from the church. Very interesting. That's an interesting way to think about it. It's not true, ultimately. But I understand why we think that. I understand why we go there in our minds because in our culture, the fundamental reality is the individual, right? It is now a moral imperative that you figure out who you are apart from any other standard. That is the moral imperative in every way. But that's not what Paul's talking about here in the scriptures. It's not what the Bible talks about. But you know, it doesn't even stop with the individual, right? Uh, Our inclination towards the individual person also goes to putting undue emphasis on individual nuclear families, right? So it's not only that the church is made up of individual believers, but it's that the church is made up of individual families who believe and then come to church. But, but what if your nuclear family doesn't go to church here? What if you're a single parent? What if you're single? What if you're not married? What if you're divorced? Then where do you fit in the family? Then where is your identity as a Christian in this local body or in the body of Christ? You see, the Bible's understanding of the family of God confronts our commitment to individualism. Both individual people, individual nuclear families, and honestly, we don't have time right now, but individual churches, right? We just view the city as this church and this church and this church, but we're actually one church. And there are lots of ways we can work that out, but we don't have time today. But I do want us to be calibrated by this reality, that all of us in our desire to change before we can move that way need to be confronted that we actually think we're the center of the universe. We actually think that our job in this life is to build our own kingdom. We actually think that the only job we have as parents is to raise kids that make us look good or that behave as opposed to who live on mission. You know, and that's one of the other things that we have to think about is what danger do we have in in the family imagery in our culture? And I think one of the dangers is that we think family is about family, right? We circle the wagon, it's just about us. And family becomes about family and community becomes about community rather than family and community being about mission. Having a purpose in the world ordained by God. I mean, this is huge for me. Like my kids are young, but I don't pray for them very well because a lot of times I'm mainly praying only. I stop at where I'm praying for their safety, their individual safety, their individual behavior, as opposed to a grander vision of how I might be a part of equipping them and putting them into this family, all of us, and how we might then equip them for mission in the world, in their school, on the playground, in community. You see, we all need to be confronted that the church as family means that me and my family and this church is not the center of the universe. It's not the center of what God is doing in the world. And that's very important for us to remember. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 
48 through 50, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, well, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus isn't making a statement that our biological families are no longer important. You can write down Matthew 15, verse three, and you can go read that. He's not saying that. Rather, he's stating that following him is far greater. That this family, that he, his family, takes priority. And so does his kingdom. So much so that all of us who follow him are counted as his brother and sister and his mother. And that's actually what we're talking about next week. What does it mean to follow Jesus? You see, individualism individualism has had many effects on the church. But I want to mention one more. Individualism has had such an impact on us that in this culture, we believe that in order to belong, in order to have identity, in order to have security, that we must be different, right? The way you're defined is by how you are unique. The way you're defined is by how you stand out. Uniqueness in and of itself isn't bad, but when, it's, when the desire is to stand out, that's when you know, yeah, I think I'm the center of the universe, because I need to stand out. I need to stand out so I can show other people that I'm worth something, that I belong. Because if I don't stand out, if I don't perform, if I don't measure up, then I might not belong anymore to this family. But in the family of God, things are different. When we understand that we are members one of another, we begin to see our individual gifts and talents as ways to love and serve others, not to get other people to love and serve us. You see, our gifts and talents individually are meant for the building up of the body, not getting the body to build us up. And the only way, the only way that we can actually live that way, which is freedom, by the way, is to first understand that we have the status of belonging and second, to understand that we've been put in this body to be served and to serve. You see, we can't do it alone. We're not meant to do it alone. Russell Moore has a book called Adopted for Life, and he says this. He says, our adoption means that we find a different kind of unity. In Christ, we find Christ. Why am I pausing? Many of us, me included, in Christ, we really hope to find a lot of other things. Security apart from Christ. Hope apart from Christ. Belonging apart from Christ. Status apart from Christ. Love apart from Christ. But in Christianity, he is the end. He's not the means. In Christ, we find Christ. We don't have our old identities based on race or class or life situation or socioeconomic status. We find our identity anywhere other than Christ or when we find our identity anywhere other than Christ, our churches will be made up of warring partisans rather than loving siblings. My prayer is that increasingly, New City will become a church that lives in this different kind of unity. Where our identities are not based on race or class or life situation or income bracket, but that we would be made up of brothers and sisters committed to loving one another for the sake of God's kingdom and for the sake of God's mission. And so I wanna close with this. Where's the power for a transformed community like this? How is this gonna happen? 
The answer comes in verse 20. Read with me here. 19b, actually. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here it is. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Not merely the teaching, not merely the idea, but Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus had everything. He had everything. He freely left everything, perfect unity with the Father to come reconcile us, not only to himself, but to one another. You realize that if we hope to live as a family, if that's even possible, Jesus had to die on the cross. He had to shed his blood to make that possible. So why do we think it just comes natural? But he left that and he came and he shed his blood on the cross so that we could be reconciled to the Father and become members one of another in one family, having one Father, having one Spirit. And having done this, Jesus is building his church, of which Paul says here he is the cornerstone. In this image, the cornerstone is the stone in the corner of the foundation, where two walls are, it's the corner of the foundation. And without a proper cornerstone, the entire building is compromised and in jeopardy because the building won't be squared and stable. You see, if we have any other cornerstone in our lives or any other cornerstone in this family besides Jesus Christ, when the ground shakes, we will fall. When things get scary, when things get hard, we will crumble. But if Jesus is the cornerstone of this family, we will not stumble. We will not fall because he is our cornerstone. When the ground gets shaky, when life gets challenging in the family of God, we must remember and cast ourselves upon the truth that nothing or no one else will suffice. Jesus himself is the cornerstone of his church. Jesus himself is the cornerstone of his family. And we are members of his family because of his blood. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now so thankful, so thankful that you have pursued us in Christ. As we heard last week, you've adopted us into your family, and now you've made us members one of another, siblings. We ask that as we sing the song of response, that we would uh, repent in joy, that we can let go of every other cornerstone in this community, every other cornerstone in our hearts. We can let go of all striving. We can get off that treadmill and actually make progress. We thank you that this is possible because you have died for us, you've set us free. We praise you in Jesus' name.